Good morning. Turning your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 15. If you're newer to Green Tree, we tend to preach through books of the Bible systematically. And we have been for the last few months in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which means beginnings. And we have come to chapter 15. So would you read along with me with your Bibles or on the screen? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a, a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down the carcass, as Abram drove them away, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a, a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephim, the Amorites, Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see your your intention in this passage for us, one which can see so, seem so detached and distant, but you are the Lord who speaks 
who lives, who is with us. Lord, with all of the concerns, the weights we bring with us, meet us in these things, for we need you. We call out for you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God here makes a covenant, which means a binding agreement, with Abram. Now, God had already given huge and wonderful promises to Abram. We've seen in the chapters in between the giving of those promises and where we are that Abram's own failures and life circumstances at, at times seem to threaten to derail those promises. But God had set straight what Abram made crooked, and the Lord had prevailed through what seemed to threaten the promises. And now God comes to encourage Abram once again about his promises. Verse 1, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, what is it that Abram feared? Why specifically was the Lord coming to speak to him and to make this covenant with him? The fear may have been simply from the, the holiness of God. There is clear biblical precedent. Men being in fear of God as their first response to when God would speak to them. It, it may be that Abram is a little fearful of what is going to happen possibly with those kings that he had defeated in the previous chapter. Because we begin this chapter where it says, after these things. When Abram had rescued his nephew Lot from uh, an alliance of four kings, he had defeated them. Would they be angry? Would they be looking for revenge? But there's also the possibility, and I think the rest of the chapter would indicate the weight being here, which is the fear in Abram that his hopes contained in God's promises would never come true. What, what do you fear about what might happen to your hopes or what might not happen in your hopes. Things, good things that we desire, that we set our heart on, that we set our minds on, and we can labor hard, and, and we can't control them. Even things we're thinking we have control over, how, how quickly we realize we, we don't. How often do we find we struggle to have control just over ourselves. God, God's answer to Abram's fears and to ours is himself. He said, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward will 
be great. Or as some translation says, I am your great reward. The Lord is, is letting Abram know he is speaking to us. He, he continues to speak through his word. I am committed to you. I am not going anywhere. Your, your hope is in me, the person of God himself. So the main point of our message today is that our hope for life is our trust in God. Our hope for life working is our trust in God. Now, Abram really does trust God. He has learned and experienced God's care. He has seen God be faithful to him. He has seen something of God's persistence even when he failed. And yet, even though Abram does know God, does love God, does trust God, yet there are still realities in Abram's life that seem to conflict with the possibility of God's promises coming true. There's an incongruence between life as it's going and what God had promised to him. The biggest of these incongruities is that Abram was still childless. And he, he's an older man. He's probably in his 80s now. His wife, Sarah, had never been able to have children. It's been his desire for years. When the Lord speaks to him, fear not, he says, Lord, what will you give me? I continue childless. You can sense the angst in his soul. And he even says to, in verse 3, Lord, behold, meaning, Lord, look at this. You, you've given me no offspring, even though God's promises involve the, the blessing of his offspring and the rest of the earth through them. How can... How can this promise you've made happen at this point in our lives? So Abram offers his solution, and isn't that what we do? Oh, Lord, I kind of was waiting on you and don't see anything happening. I know you've said this, but this might work out, and in the end, it may be a little compromised, but we'll get there. His solution was to adopt Eleazar. We don't know who he is. Someone who was a member of his household, not a blood relative. But he was offering, I'll adopt him. I'll make him my heir. And I'll have descendants through him. And God just brushes aside Abram's plans. And in the goodness of God, he doesn't exchange his plans for ours for which we should be so very grateful. 
Instead, the Lord, in a sense, essence, says, come with me and takes him outside and look. I, I forget where I was some time ago, uh, a place where we don't have the light pollution all around us, and it was a dark night, and I, I remember how struck I was how many stars are up there? The, the sky was just filled with stars. And, and that was the Lord's point. You know, count the stars if you can, which you can't. And the Lord says, that's what your descendants will be. This is how huge will be the fulfillment of my promise to you. And amazingly, verse 6, and Abram believed God. He believed the impossible. In a situation of decades-long frustration. Now, this wasn't blind faith. Often, on, on TV shows and in movies, when you have a religious person, a pastor, some clergy, interacting with someone uh, who is struggling with situations, and uh, the, the pastor is saying that uh, it doesn't matter if you can't see or understand. It, you just have to have faith, as if faith is detached from facts or reality. You just... You have to have faith, which is a rather meaningless statement. Just believe what? The Bible never, ever even suggests that we would practice or build our life on blind faith. The Bible calls us to have faith in the person of God who speaks and stands behind his word and is able and is trustworthy. God who is faithful. Our faith is never meant to be blind. It is to be committed in the person of our God. And that is the faith Abram had. He still... He, he still could not understand how this could be. He believed God. And the scripture says, and that faith saved him. We're told, and God counted it as righteousness. God, in other places in scripture, it speaks of being imputed. God gave to him his own righteousness because he trusted God. And that is what saved Abram. Faith is a work that God does. For the other confusion that people can have about faith is it's something that they just have to work up and they're not sure how you can have strong faith. They see some people do and they're what? how do I work up and make myself have strong faith? And they think, well, that could never happen, so I could never have it. Faith is a work God does 
in us. We grow in it. We look to it, but it's God's work. And the Bible tells us that clearly. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul has this to tell us. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So it is through faith, with God's grace, we're saved. And this, this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The faith by which we trust God, even that is a work of God. Faith that saves us is God, in essence, opening our eyes so we see him and begin to grasp the majesty and wonder and goodness and holiness and faithfulness. And as we see the truth of God, we believe and trust him and we desire him. And as we see our sin that rightfully keeps us from God and would bring his judgment. We desire to be pleasing to him and we cast ourselves upon him, calling for God to forgive us, to cleanse us. We trust what he has done, the sending of his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Faith is to believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. And God is the one who opens our eyes for that to take place. And that's, that's how everyone who's ever been saved, that's how anyone who has ever come to know and love God, that's the means and the only means that's ever been used. Whether you come to trust him today or it was Abraham, so many years ago, for the Apostle Paul describes to us the significance of what we read in verse 6. And this is in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 25. And Paul is, is speaking of the significance of the faith we have to bring us to God. And he, he refers back to Abram, this example of faith. He said, no unbelief made Abram waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now pay attention, it says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is saying, just as Abraham, God declared him righteous because of his trusting that God was able, if we believe that God who sent his son, who died for our sin, and God raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell, reigning now if we entrust ourselves to what God has done in Christ, then we too 
despite the realities of our sin, we too will have God call us and make us righteous. For biblical faith, it's not understanding how life will always work. Biblical faith is trusting who makes it work and what has he said for us to trust him in. Well, there was another incongruity between Abram's life and God's promise, and that was not only the promise for descendants, but promise that this land would be yours for your descendants. We see that in verses 7 and 8. He said to Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? As of now, Abram is, is traveling around. He doesn't own a square inch of land. In fact, we'll see at the very end of his life, the only land he will ever own in this region will be his own burial plot. What he could see was the reality we read in the last two, three verses of the chapter that long list of all the nations who were already living there, already possessing the land. He's seeing that reality. So, Lord, how am I to possess it? How do I know the descendants you're saying you will give me will possess it? How am I to know? Have you ever wished proof of certainty from God. I can remember years ago, a young pastor who was going through great difficulty. And I, I remember him saying, if I just knew this was what God wanted, it wouldn't matter what I had to go through. If, if I knew. That's what Abram is how can I be certain? God's assurance to Abram is a, a covenant ritual ceremony that we read through much of this chapter. Now, this ritual ceremony was not as strange to Abram as it is when we read it, because uh, not exactly the same, but there were covenant ritual ceremonies that were part of the ancient Near East culture. So there, there would have been context for Abram in, in what God had asked him to do. First, he, he took the animals that God had told him to gather, which we'll later see are all animals that would be designated as appropriate for sacrifices unto the Lord. But he he cut the animals in half and laid them in two parallel rows. And when it became dark, a theophany appears, meaning a visible manifestation of God who is an invisible being. This is in verse 17. The, the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch appeared, and fire and smoke represent that God is awesome, pure, and Holy. And we'll see 
similar theophanies later in the history of Israel, whether it's the burning bush with Moses, whether it is when the people come to Mount Sinai in the fire and smoke as the law is about to be given, or the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people for 40 years. God will manifest visibly in a way people know, okay, here is the presence of God. The covenant is made by the theophany of God, this manifestation of God in smoke and fire passing through the pieces. What does all that mean? It's, it's rather very dramatic and forceful of God. It is known in ancient cultures as a self kill ritual, meaning the Lord was saying, so shall it happen to me as happened to these animals cut in two if I do not fulfill my promises. May I be cut in two and destroyed if my Word fails. How could God make a stronger statement to Abram about his promises? And notice, Abram doesn't have to follow God between the pieces. It, the entirety of the covenant was based upon God being faithful. It wasn't, I will be faithful, and Abram, okay, and you're going to have to hold up your part, or so it be to you. No, it was, it was all and only what God would do. God would fulfill it, and when Abram would fail, which he has and will, God will preserve and keep him. Now, why would God bother to make a covenant like this? It's not as if God needs to make a covenant to hold him accountable. That God needed the motivation. I put myself out there, I better do it. The, the reason that, that God makes a covenant is... We struggle to remain certain about his promises because circumstances oppose us and we wonder how it's going to work because time passes and we get weary in waiting because along the way we fail often enough and grievous enough that we can be wonder, will God abandon his promises to me? And for all of those reasons, God sets before us a commitment to what he has promised, not what we just pull out of the air and wish he'll do, what God has said he will do. He stands behind it in 
emphatically so that if you're waiting, weary, on your face by your own failures or opposed by the world, God is bigger beyond all of that and he will sustain us and fulfill what he has said. Now, this is, remember, coming to answer Abram's question, Lord, uh, how will I know? And notice how this covenant ceremony is introduced. For kind of some strange things. The first is birds of prey are coming on the carcasses. He has to chase them away. And then dread and darkness comes. These are God being directed honest with Abram. My covenant promise doesn't mean you won't be opposed. The birds of prey will come. They will need to be chased away. Dread and darkness will come. Fearful times will come. And then God tells them exactly what one of them will be. Your descendants will actually be enslaved somewhere else for 400 years. How's that for God saying, you want to know for certain how I'm going to answer this promise? Well, first you're going to have to wait 400 years. And it's going to be really hard. We would, oh, how, this is, this is unanimous, how we wish those wonderful promises came with. And so tomorrow, and all the hard part of life, you just got past it. You just got past all the hard things. It's just smooth and wonderful. It's like vacation the rest of the way. Who is senseless enough not to want that? That's what we all would want God to say. But we're all in this world sinful with people opposing the things of God. The only way... All of those burdens are gone is for us to be complete in that kingdom. So the Lord is, is honest about what is ahead. And, and that's why life doesn't always feel hopeful. What are the vultures circling around your hopes right now? But God declares he will stand behind what he promises. Even when we can't see how it will end. You've heard promises that have failed. People who are disingenuous, people who tried their best and simply couldn't. People who changed their mind People who committed to you and then betrayed you. We've all seen and experienced promises made. I've stood here speaking over those promises to hundreds of people. And some didn't last very long. But God... 
is incapable of breaking his promise. God is incapable of failing. And that is why his promises are indestructible. And it is why we can be certain of what he has said. Now we live in the new covenant, which the covenant to Abram was just start, starting to set before us. We who live in the new covenant, well, how does God show to us that his promise is certain? How do we know God is committed to us? And the answer we see from Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The certainty of the promise of God to us is that God did not withhold his own son and crushed his son in judgment when he bore our sin. That is how we know God is not giving up on what he has promised. Our hope, people of God, we, we have wishes. But our, our hope is not that life is going to get easy. Our hope is not in that people will do what they should. Our hope's not even that God is going to work quickly. Our hope is that God's covenant to save us, keep us, and bring us to a kingdom of a new heaven and earth untouched by sin, our hope is that God's covenant is faithful and wonderful. That is what we hope in. So two closing thoughts as we finish. The first is that a certainty this powerful, a certainty appropriate to the strength of God's fierce declaration, a certainty that strong should guard our hearts and lift our hearts. A life that is regularly anxious, angry, complaining, doesn't fit the reality of what God has said is sure. We're angry at people because they're messing up life. But God has assured us of how life will end up. We're anxious. What will happen? Well, we know what will finally happen. We're blah complaining because we don't like what someone's doing in the car next to us and the line in front of us when we know what God has promised. Certainty this sure should change. Attitudes, heart condition, and so action in life. So when peace is lacking, when joy is lacking, it shows us that we're drifting from the right promise and we're hoping in the things 
that are not our hope. And the next thought is connected to this. A life that really does walk in Christ-centered hope. A life that is embedded in peaceableness, joyfulness, seeing God continually before us. A life like that is a powerful witness of the gospel being true. It does save. It does sustain. While the world is busy trying its anything but God plans, global health agencies everywhere in the world all unified in saying we are in a loneliness and depression epidemic. Even though we have more prosperity than we've ever had, We have more opportunity to experience and do things than humanity has ever had. We have more connectedness through technology. We can connect with people all over the world at any time. We have lots of opinions, lots of research. We have lots of meds. And none of it and all of it has helped at all. In fact, with all of this, loneliness increases and depression increases. People are desperate to see and to know where, where is hope found? Real Hope, where, where can I find it? And when we live as people of hope, peace and joy are not just for ourselves. Peace and joy are so that Christ we worship is lifted up before the eyes of those who know us and we see something of how wonderful he is. And so this morning, once again, let your own soul know, let the world know that our hope for life is our trust in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you would confirm yourself to every person here. Throughout this passage, you're speaking to Abram. Lord, speak to us. May we, may we see the certainty we have in what you have done, in your son whom you've sent, in the salvation he brings, in the love you want us to live in. Lord, bring clarity to this. Help us give faith to us in Jesus' name. Amen.